Welcome to Getting Through It, where we're here to help you get through it. I'm John Bwery, and as always, I'm with global disaster expert, Dr. Lucy Jones. Today's episode is sponsored in part by SoCal Gas, who's committed to building resilience in the communities it serves. We also thank our individual supporters who help underwrite the work of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society through Patreon. Would you consider sponsoring this podcast for as little as $5 per month? Because your support enables us to serve even more communities. Simply go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Now let's get to it. This week, the eruption of an underwater volcano in the South Pacific Kingdom of Tonga affected the entire globe. As of the time of this recording, there is still a lot that is unknown, but what is known is what has been known by scientists. A large underwater volcanic eruption changes the shape of the seafloor, which displaces water, causing a tsunami. And with as large as it was, The explosion caused rock, ash, and gases to be thrown many miles into the atmosphere. This doesn't surprise those who study volcanoes, but watching it unfold on the news, the internet, and across social media shows that there is a lot that non-scientists don't understand, and that creates more cause for concern than is necessary. First, though, what happened locally is devastating, and communications with the capital of Tonga have been limited to this point, so we don't know exactly what the direct impact is just a few days later. But in coastal cities around the Pacific, there was an impact that was announced as tsunami waves spread across. So let's start, Lucy, with the volcano and then look at the tsunami. What happened with this volcano and its eruption? And you told me earlier, this isn't even over yet. Now, we don't have all that much information. The Internet's out into the area, and we're mostly basing this off of satellite photos. So the volcano that erupted is what we would call an underwater volcano, submarine volcano. There was actually a couple of small islands uninhabited that were the rim of the caldera from the previous eruption. We know there was a big eruption around 1100 AD. What we don't know yet is how much material moved underwater, but it must have been a lot to create the tsunami. And we do know that the islands that were there on that edge of the caldera have disappeared. They no longer show up on satellite photos. These are uninhabited islands, though. Yes, at least they're uninhabited. So that would have been, of course, very devastating. One piece of information we do have is the size of the pressure wave that was created by the explosion. So there was one really big explosion. It was literally heard as a sonic boom in New Zealand, which is like 1,300 miles away. And it traveled around the world. We have atmospheric pressure recordings here across the United States, for instance, and you can see this pressure wave come in several hours after the event as the first atmospheric front passes over the United States from the west to the east. And then a few hours later, we saw one coming from east to the west, which was the wave that had gone the other way around the world. And then we saw a third pass, which was the western approaching wave coming back again after having circumnavigated the globe. So it was a pressure wave big enough to see clearly as it crossed around the world multiple times. We have measurements that told us what happened at the surface, right? This in the atmosphere Mm -hmm. at that point, at least. But how do we know what happened underwater? What moved? How do we communicate that measurement of what actually happened with the volcano itself? Okay, so there's something called the Volcanic Explosivity Index. For all disasters, there's lots of smaller ones and very few big ones and very, very few of the really biggest ones. And we as human beings want a scale. So we have the magnitude scale for earthquakes or we have hurricane categories. V 
VEI describes the size of volcanoes based on the amount of material ejected into the sky. Notice it's the volcanic explosivity index. So it goes from zero to eight, and those volcanoes, like some of the ones we see in Hawaii, where the lava just flows over the ground, nothing's really getting into the air, that's a zero. Each unit going up on the scale is an order of magnitude more ejected, 10 times as much volume of rock exploded into the air. That's what ejecta means. A couple of previous episodes of this podcast, like back in episode 42, we described why some volcanoes explode and others don't. Go listen to that if you want those details. What we have is we have our laid back liquidy volcanoes like Hawaii, sometimes called shield volcanoes. Then we have somewhat stickier types that intersperse explosions, creating ash with lava flows. That's called stratovolcanoes. They grow the tallest mountains in the world and their biggest eruptions are usually around a VEI of about five. Then we have the type of volcanoes that erupted this week and others that are so sticky that they create really big explosions and that blows the mountains apart so they don't get to get as big. That's like Mount Pinatubo in 1991. That had a VEI of six. Mount St. Helens that many people remember was just a, just a five. The largest we have historically was the explosion of Mount Tambura in 1815 that was a seven and it caused what was called the year without a summer. So much ash got into the sky, it blocked out the sunlight, and the whole earth stayed really cold through the summer. They had snow in July in England, for instance. There is a category of eight, but we've only seen those in geology. The most recent that we know about was about 26,000 years ago in New Zealand. But to get this number, we have to be able to estimate how much material was ejected by the volcano, and that takes time to figure out. So there's a number, but it appears to take a long time to get to it. So we're not going to know that number right away. But if you look at that satellite image that sort of circulated right afterward of this explosion from space, it seemed huge. So what's it going to be like right there in Tonga during or after that explosion so big? Luckily, the islands that disappeared, that literally went underwater, were not inhabited. But the largest island in the kingdom is not very far from the eruption. We know that it was hit by the tsunami, and some settlements were washed away. We can see that from satellite photos. Internet service was knocked out, which might be connected to disrupting underwater cables for the data. So we have limited information here early on. We know that they're going to be facing an ongoing issue of volcanic ash continuing to rain down on them. And of course, when you get volcanic eruptions, you have this really big explosion, but there might be continuing smaller eruptions or potentially even more big ones coming along over the next weeks and months. And so we don't know exactly when this is going to stop moving. You mentioned that the tsunami that they affected, right? We always talk about tsunamis. We've had a number of episodes on tsunamis. And we say that tsunamis, you know, happen locally from local events, but also can go across the ocean, which is what we saw. So we don't have a lot of information of what exactly happened in Tonga, but we saw that this happened across the Pacific and that even two women in Peru died in this. We saw damage here in California to boats and other vehicles that are right at the shoreline. How did it get here in California? And what should people look for when a tsunami warning is issued? Because I think that was one of the big pieces of confusion that we saw both from media requests as well as from social media and across the internet was what does it mean and what precautions should we take? How did it get here? We need to remember the basics. You have to change the shape of a sea floor to displace water that creates the wave. So something went on in this volcano that moved a lot of water. 
we already have estimates that this tsunami is bigger than say the one that was created in the eruption of Krakatoa back in 1883. So we're talking about a lot of water moved, much more than we usually see connected with volcanic eruptions. And we still need to understand why it moved so much. Once the wave got out, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, operates buoys across the deep ocean and it could see the wave traveling. And that's why it issued a tsunami advisory. Remember that the words advisory, warning, and watch have specific meanings to NOAA when they issue these statements. Okay, so a watch is like, well, we're seeing something or maybe there's been an event and we haven't yet recorded it on the buoys. Be careful watch out. An advisory means that we see a tsunami coming that is going to be about one to three feet. What this means is that you're going to get a temporary rise in the sea level of one to three feet. If you are more than three feet above sea level, it isn't going to be affecting you. So it's an advisory because it's really only at the beach and in the water where you're going to be seeing the biggest effects. That level two is about the level of a tide. So if it comes in on low tide, you're going to have strong currents, but the water won't get very high. If it comes in on high tide, which it did in California, then you start seeing the water getting into parking lots and above what the normal beach level is. So looking at here, California, you and I are both in Los Angeles County, nowhere near the coast ourselves. If you're anywhere that's not low lying in California, you're likely to be safe from this or other future tsunamis. Even in Venice, I think about here in Los, again, Los Angeles County, Venice is fairly flat at the coast with the Venice boardwalk. Models that we've looked at in the past suggest that even the biggest tsunamis just reach to Lincoln Boulevard, just a, a few blocks in, and most places are not going to be impacted by a tsunami. So yes, you don't want to be on the beach when there's a warning or even an advisory in place, but it's not so far that you have to travel to be safe. And sometimes it's even just traveling to a second story a block or two in. Right. And the California Geological Survey publishes maps. You can go and look at them yourself. If you aren't below 10 feet in elevation, you really don't have much of a tsunami issue in Southern California. Even in other locations, once you get 40 or 50 feet above sea level, that's higher than almost all of the tsunamis we can possibly imagine. So we need to remember that this is something that's really confined right to the coast. But that's not all, Lucy. I mean, it's not just the fact that it's this lower level of wave in terms of feet or meters, but there's other things like the fact that it is more than one wave, right? It's not just a, quote, tidal wave coming at you, but a series of waves, as you described, sloshing. What else do people need to know about tsunamis as these warnings are issued? The timing is important. The advisory or warning will usually give you a time of arrival, but that's the beginning of the event. And things will continue to be coming after that. I sort of use a rule of thumb of like, for the next day, it's a really good idea to stay out of the water and away from the beach because we have seen the waves continue over that sort of time frame. This was an interesting event where the tide gauges clearly show continuing relatively large displacements going on for six, 12 hours here on the California coast. We're going to need to figure out what happened back at that volcano to understand all of what we're seeing in this event. And this event, as tragic as it might be for individuals directly affected by it, is a reminder to the rest of us that the impacts from the largest natural hazards, all those big ones, are not always the immediate disaster. There's this intense local impact. There's a global impact, right? We've seen with the tsunami wave. And there's a potentially a longer lasting global impact with the ash that has been shot up into the atmosphere. Right. By making this podcast so soon after the event or potentially during the continuing eruption means we have a lot of outstanding questions. This tsunami does seem to be the biggest we've recorded from a volcano. 
that appears to be larger than what happened in Krakatoa. So we need to understand, and we don't know yet, what happened underwater to move that much water. We still don't have the VEI yet. We don't know how much the eruption being underwater affected the transport of ash into the atmosphere because those global impacts come when the ash gets up into the stratosphere, blocks sunlight. And actually, we have seen cooling of the Earth going on for a couple of years because of volcanoes. Ain't going to really help us on climate change. The effect only lasts as long as the ash stays in the atmosphere, which is usually never more than a couple of years. The scientists are going to be collecting data and trying to answer these questions. The Tonga Geological Services have been out collecting the data already because like all geological surveys, they are dedicated to earth science in the public service because this is the science we need to get through our next natural disaster. Well, let's leave it there for now. And until next time, I'm John Bwery with Dr. Lucy Jones and you getting through it. Getting Through It is a production of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Visit us online to get past shows and become a supporter at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Our music is performed by Josh Lee and this closing music is written by our own Dr. Lucy Jones. <laughs>